This morning we'll be in John chapter 18 and John chapter 19. I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, in a couple of days from now, the people of the United States of America will elect a new president to govern our great nation. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the trial of Jesus before the civil authorities, specifically Pilate. And while the election is not a trial, it sure has played out like that, hasn't it? I mean, there's been a lot of accusations, uh, and the candidates have attacked one another uh, both on policy and character. And I want to encourage you this Tuesday to get out and vote because it's our civic responsibility. But I want to remind you of God's sovereignty in the matter as well. Listen to Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So know this, while things may seem to be out of control to us, they are not out of control to our Almighty God. He is in complete control. He is still on his throne. And just as God will sovereignly work through this election and put leaders into place for our nation, there were leaders in place in Israel and in Rome during the time of Jesus' trial. And what we see is that they are completely responsible for their actions and are completely part of God's plan for redemption. So let's read John chapter 18, starting in verse 28, and we'll read through 1916. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said this, said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man from you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, 
he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. At the end of last week's sermon, we saw the conclusion of the religious trial that Jesus was a part of. And it was at night and it was illegal. And it ended with Annas sending Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, in the morning. And this religious trial that they, they, had, um, that they had was just really just a formality. Because if you look back at John 11, the Jews had already decided and determined that they would kill Jesus. And so we pick up in verse 28 where they lead Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They do this because the Jewish council did not have the right to execute prisoners. They had to have approval from Rome. So in this instance, they had to cooperate with Rome, which was not a popular thing for the Jews to do. There are a couple of reasons, I think, that verse 28 is very interesting. First, they were going to great lengths to have Jesus executed. They were willing to work with the Romans. Secondly, look at it, they would not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled. Now, the irony here is that they had been ceremonially cleansed in preparation for the Passover. They were concerned about their spiritual condition. They wanted to make sure they were right before God. And uh, the, this illustrates the kind of twisted devotion of these religious legalists. The Jewish leaders expected to please God through their legalism expressed in physical separation from a Gentile home while at the same time illegally murdering the Son of God. The Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. And at the very same time, they're busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of Him who alone is the true Passover. This is the heart of legalism, isn't it? As long as we look okay on the outside, yet these people's hearts were wicked and they were murdering God's Son. Nevertheless, Pilate comes out to meet with him. And Pilate was an interesting character. If you follow Pontius Pilate, you'll see he was, he was the governor of Rome for probably about uh, 10 years from A.D. 26 to 36. And uh, he was not greatly liked by the Jews, as were most of the Romans unliked by the Jews. His approval rating was at historic lows. I mean, it was terrible, his approval rating. And uh, we see in the Gospels that Pilate was ruthless when he wanted to be. And he also understood the Jewish power structure, so he was appeasing to them at times, um, and he knew how to use them to manipulate them. And uh, we see that he was an indecisive man. He was a weak man. He was a compromising man. He was not concerned about justice as much as he was about his own image. He was concerned about his own reputation, his own protection. He was proud. He was arrogant. He was cynical, but he was also weak and vacillating. 
I'm glad we don't have any politicians like that, aren't you? So we get this guy, Pilate, who's the head of this trial, and we can follow this text by simply following some questions that Pilate asks. And we see the first question in, in verse 29. Pilate asks, what is the accusation? What have you accused this man of? That's a good way to start a trial, right? What's the charge against Jesus? And, and so in verse 30, they say, the Jewish leaders say, if this man was not evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So they accuse Jesus of, of being an evildoer. And they're, they're kind of beating around the bush here. Uh, they definitely want to assault Jesus' character to make him look bad, but they don't have a specific legal violation. Plus, the, the fact that calling Jesus evil was just extremely false. He had done no evil. They had no evidence against him. In fact, the Jews weren't able to bring even one legitimate accusation against Jesus, and that was proof of his innocence. Now, we see in Luke's account that they accuse him of leading the nation astray, opposing paying tribute to Caesar, and claiming to be the Messiah, the king. So Pilate hears all these things, and, and those are things to do with the Jews. He's like, what does this have to do with Rome? And so he kind of dismisses them. He says, go judge him yourselves according to your own law. Now, he may have said this for a couple reasons. One, he may have just wanted to get wash his hands of the whole situation. We see that kind of picture. He washes his hands later. He kind of didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But I think even more so, he wanted, to, he wanted the Jews to acknowledge something. For, for we see their response. Uh, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so he elicits this response from them that where the Jews acknowledge that Pilate is in charge, that he has the authority. Pilate has this power struggle. And he's the one, he's making sure they understand that he has authority. Rome is in control here. And soon, soon though, Pilate would cave to their demands. Uh, but here he stands his ground. And when we, as we look at it, we just kind of, we can wonder all these things about his power struggle and different things. But we really see the real reason, and it's our first clear picture of God's sovereignty, that he's in complete control in this situation in verse 32. Look at it. Verse 32 says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Why didn't the Jews just kill Jesus? There was a deeper significance to the exchange between Pilate and the Jewish leaders here. The wicked scheming of the Jews and Pilate's actions merely served to fulfill the word that Jesus had already spoken about what kind of death he was going to die. If you look back at John chapter 3, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, we see that Jesus would be lifted up. In John 3, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So why didn't the Jews just lift Jesus up and kill him? Well, that wasn't their way of doing it. Their way of execution was stoning. Someone had broken the laws of Judaism. They were stoned to death. And so Jesus would have been stoned. But the Lord's prediction was about to be fulfilled as he was lifted up, and we'll see that next week, on the cross, a distinctively Roman kind of execution, all part of God's eternal plan. So God providentially controlled the events of Jesus' death, of his trial, rather, to ensure that his prophetic words would come to pass. Now, when things seem out of control, know this, God is in control. God is in control. And that leads us to the next question, the next section here, where in verses 33 through following, Pilate asked another question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this question is recorded in all four Gospels. Pilate would have certainly been interested in someone claiming to be a king. 
And Jesus' reply, as, as found in Matthew's account, is, it is as you say. But John's emphasis is, how, is, is on Jesus uh, and God's sovereignty in this matter. Because in verse 34, you see his response. Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate's, Pilate's response to Jesus shows his disdain for the Jews, that he's not at all happy with the Jews. He, he, he felt the Romans were better than the Jews. There was obvious prejudice here, and he shows sarcasm. He asks the question, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? I, 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 don't, I don't really care here. Your own people handed you over to me. What have you done? It was obvious that there were some serious accusations. Jesus was a Jew being handed over. It would not have been uncommon for Rome to take a Jew and hand him over. But for a Jew to take a Jew and give him to Rome, that would have been strange. And so Pilate's like, man, look, your own people are handing you over. Insurrectionists were usually looked at as good, man. Let's fight against Rome. But here we have one that's being handed over to Rome. And Jesus answers Pilate in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting but I, that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And his, his explanation here shows again Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for us, but also God's will in the matter. As we talked about last week, Jesus could have went to battle with these guys. He could have, he could have, could have taken everyone out. As, as a matter of fact, he knocked them down when they came to arrest him just by saying his name. And then Peter cuts off a guy's ear and Jesus says, hey, man, Peter, let's don't do that. I, I could call down thousands of angels right now to take care of this matter, but he doesn't. He willingly gives himself over to these authorities. So he is explaining this to, to Pilate. He's saying no earthly king would have allowed himself to have been captured so easily. Jesus is indeed a king, but his authority, according to these verses, does not come from this world. The Jews were under the authority of Rome. Pilate was under the authority of the, of the emperor, and, but Jesus derived his authority from somewhere else, from God the Father. Jesus had authority, and yet he withheld his authority to call down angels so that he might be obedient to the Father. See, Jesus' kingdom, and I believe he's explaining that to us, and it would be good for us to understand this morning, is a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's in the hearts of of his followers, and he does not depend on worldly or fleshly means to advance his kingdom because his kingdom is not of this world. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are a part of his kingdom. You are part of the kingdom of God. You're part of his kingdom right now on this earth. But this kingdom doesn't function in an earthly manner. You don't have to physically fight for this kingdom. This kingdom will not fall to another kingdom. You are secure in this kingdom. And if you die, it only propels you deeper into the kingdom of God. Amen? And so this world is passing away. It's falling apart. And this is not our final destination. You are being preserved for a better kingdom through this world. This world is not your home, Corey. You're just passing through. Your treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels do beckon you from heaven's celestial shore. And you can't feel at home in this world anymore. Amen? And Jesus is not at home in this world. That's why He is going 
to the Father. That was Jesus. He was going to the Father. He was sending the Spirit to dwell in us. He is our King. And we obey Him now. We worship Him now. We bow down to Him now. We represent His kingdom now. But oh, what a day it will be when we are absent from these bodies and present with the Lord, worshiping Him in His eternal kingdom. Amen? And so this world's not our home. You and I, we get it. At least we should get it. Amen? But his disciples, they don't get it till later. And Pilate is absolutely clueless. Jesus has went all spiritual on him. And he is he's baffled by it all. He's wishy-washy like normal politicians in an earthly kingdom. And he asks in verse 37, so you are a king. Like, I get it now. You are a king. You are saying you're a king. And Jesus gives further explanation. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born and I came in to the world. Now, John is so amazing at teaching us more about who Jesus is. Even in this instance, he doesn't want his followers to forget who we're talking about here. And he says that Jesus was born, the incarnation of Christ, the most paramount birth in human history. This is saying that he was born. It displays Jesus' humanity. But look at what else he says. For this reason, I came into the world. He wasn't just born, but I came into the world. This indicates Jesus' deity, which we talked about way back in John chapter 1. And the fact that Jesus came into the world means that he existed before the birth in Bethlehem. And that is important and repeated throughout John's gospel. Jesus explains his origins. He's not just an ordinary man. He's the God man. And John is emphasizing that so we don't forget who we're talking about. But Jesus explains that to Pilate. He doesn't get it. And Jesus goes on to explain not just his origin, but his earthly ministry. He explains his ministry. We see that in verse 37. I've come that I might bear witness to the truth. See, earthly kingdoms use swords and guns and things of that nature. But our Lord's kingdom, our Lord's weapon, was the truth of God. It was the sword of the Spirit. And what is the truth that Jesus bore witness to? Christ proclaimed the truth about God, about men, about sin, about judgment, holiness, love, eternal life. In short, everything pertaining to life and godliness. That was the truth that Jesus proclaimed. While he was here on earth, he was proclaiming these truths and what people did with that message, that message of truth that Jesus proclaimed determined their eternal destiny. And as Jesus went on to declare, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you see that there? The Greek word there for some translations say hears, others say listens. It includes this concept of obedience. We, we may say to our children or others, listen to me. You ever said that? Listen to me. You don't want them to just hear what you say. You want them to do what you say. And that's the implication here that those who trust Christ don't just hear his word, but they do it. In John 10, 30, uh, 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. So the life of a Christian, someone who has heard these truths is transformed so that they live and they follow Jesus Christ. Now, we can be sure that Jesus' words here implied an invitation to Pilate the Roman governor, to hear and obey the truth about Jesus. But his words were lost on Pilate's hard heart. And he abruptly ends this interrogation with the cynical, pessimistic remark, what is truth? What is truth? This was common in Greek life. It's still common in many societies. It's very common in our society, questioning what is truth. This is the tragedy of man's 
a fallen man's rejection of God. Without God, there cannot be any absolutes. Without absolutes, there can be no objective universal normative truths. So truth becomes subjective, relative, pragmatic. Whatever makes sense to us, that's truth. Doesn't make sense, can't be true. Timeless universal principles. Timeless universal principles become more personal and cultural preferences. Whatever feels good, do it. What's right for me might not be right for you. What's right for you might not be right for me. And eventually, nations accept sin as the social norm, and eventually the next generation is desensitized to it, and we find ourselves morally degrading. Christians, let it not be. Let's hold on to the truth, the truth that Jesus proclaimed. Stand for the truth. Bear witness to the truth. Teach it to your children when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk along the path. Write it on the the doorpost at your home. Etch it into the stained concrete in your house. Whatever you've got to do to keep this truth alive, speak the truth to the next generation. Amen? We've got to hold on to truth. We can't become cynical and ask the question like Pilate, what is truth? We're here to bear witness also to this truth. In our text, Pilate doesn't get the memo. Jesus had already said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And in John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus taught a lot about truth. And Jesus here is getting all spiritual on Pilate, and he realized that Jesus was absolutely no threat to Rome. He was no threat to Rome. And so he says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate finds no guilt in him. Pilate, someone who would have wanted to prosecute a Jew, finds no fault in him. More evidence to Jesus' innocence. And that leads us to the next question that Pilate asks, and it's found in verse 39. Verse 39, he says, But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, there was this custom for the release of a prisoner at Passover, and Pilate sees that as an opportunity to get rid of this man that he finds no fault in. And he thinks, surely they will release Jesus. But they don't. They release Barabbas. They want Barabbas, a robber. In the other Gospels, they write of him as a notorious prisoner, a murderer, insurrectionist. And if you if you break down the, the name bar Abba, Barabbas, it's son, Bar, of a father. It's it's likely, you know, a lot of times in Jewish culture, they would name, uh, if it was if it was my son, I might would name him Bar Matthew, son of Matthew, or Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Here we have Bar Abba, son of the father, son of a father. He might not even knew who his dad was. Someone whose life, was probably marked by lots of struggle, intense, intenseness, murder, thieving, insurrection, someone who did not follow authority. Probably didn't think he had anybody as an authority in his life. And that's who the Jews want to release instead of Jesus. Now, I'm not really sure about Barabbas' life up into that. Some of those things are speculation, but there's one thing I do know. He was guilty. 
He was accused and guilty. He was a murderer. He was a robber. The scripture teaches us that he was not a good man. He was a very bad man. And this election takes place and the Jews cast their ballots for Barabbas. And Jesus, the one whom Pilate found no guilt in, the one whom John emphasizes his emphasis, uh, his innocence, takes the place of the guilty one, Barabbas. You have to believe that God is trying to show us something here. That, that he took the place of the worst of sinners. He was the substitute, the innocent for the guilty. Someone who had false accusations, who someone who had been proved was guilty. This morning, I confess to you, I am Barabbas. I'm guilty. I have lived a life that has not measured up to the innocence of Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. And Jesus has taken my place. He is my substitute. I stand before you as someone who was released because of the innocence of Jesus Christ. This is Barabbas, and I hope he is your substitute. I hope that you realize Jesus has taken you from your guilty state and you understand the grace that has been extended to you to exchange his perfection for your imperfection. The scripture teaches us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be called the righteousness of God. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. Praise God. Barabbas is set free. Praise God. Matt Jones has been set free. Praise God. You have been set free by Christ. We move on in the text. And in John 1, Pilate's running out of options. Nothing that he's trying to do is working. He's trying to get rid of Jesus. So he tries to appease the Jews and he has Jesus flogged or whipped, or scourged. And this idea of scourging, it's, it's a, a hideous, cruel, hideously cruel form of punishment. The victim is, is stripped and bound to a post and beaten by several torturers in turn. And you may have heard of the, the cat of nine tails that they beat people with, and, and they would do 40 blows minus one. That idea of 40 blows comes from De- Deuteronomy. They were, they were allowed to, to beat someone with 40 blows, but the Jews, because they didn't even want to get close to the law, they only did it 39 times so that, so that they could avoid going over 40. But the Jews are not the ones beating Jesus here. It's the Romans. And the Romans could care less about the Jewish law. And so they beat someone till they were dead or till the guys that were beating him were t- tired out. And to make things even more hideous, they, they construct this crown for Jesus made of thorns. And they, they jam it down into his head and they put a purple robe on him to mock him and to mock the Jews. They verbally abuse him, it says, and they mock him as king of the Jews. Then they slap him in the face. And Pilate marches out to them and he says, I still, I find no guilt in this man. And in somewhat of a theatrical way, he he sarcastically introduces Jesus to them. Behold the man, bloodied and beaten. Imagine the Savior standing there before them, his face bruised and swollen from the Roman soldiers. He looked like anything but a king. And Pilate hopes that the beaten and pathetic figure would would satiate their bloodthirst and gain sympathy from the multitude. 
But it, it seemed only to whet their appetite. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and officers saw him, when they saw him, when they looked upon him, this beaten man, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate still finds no guilt in him in verse 6. And Jesus, the Jews answered in verse 7. And their answer is that they have a law. And according to that law, Jesus should be made, uh, should die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now, this specific charge brings out their true motives. They, they see Pilate as not going to prosecute Jesus for anything to do with Rome as he saw Jesus as non-threatening. But the Jews appeal to him to sentence Jesus based on the Jewish religious law. And in verse 8, Pilate hears this, and the Scripture says he's more afraid. So obviously, Pilate here is frightened by all this going on. Pilate may have been cynical, but like most Jews, he was also very superstitious. Matthew tells us that his wife had had a dream about Jesus and that she didn't want Pilate to have anything to do with him. So all this is running through his mind, and he's now thinking perhaps that Jesus, this man that they've beaten, is the son of one of the Greek gods. Perhaps he's someone who has divine power. And that brings us to another key question we see in verse 9. Where are you from? So Pilate goes back in and he asks Jesus where he is from. And Jesus doesn't answer him. Maybe he couldn't hardly talk. He had been beaten by the Romans so badly. But he keeps his mouth closed. And verse 10, we see that Pilate says, man, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And then Jesus speaks in verse 11. And he shatters the notion that Pilate is in control. He says, man, you have no authority except what has been given from you above. God was in complete control of this. God was sacrificing his son for us. And although Pilate was a responsible moral agent and accountable for his actions, he did not have the ultimate control over the events related to the Son of God. Nothing that happens, even the death of Jesus, is outside the sovereignty of God. And Jesus tells Pilate that the one who delivered him over to him had the greater sin. And he's referring to the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders. That, that point simply to make, man, there's some serious consequences to what has happened here. Verse 12 Pilate does everything he can to release Jesus. He's, he's seen and heard so much. He hadn't thought about spiritual things this much in a long time. He's wore out from it more than likely. And so he's still trying to dismiss Jesus. But the Jews present a dilemma to him. Do you see it there? Pilate could not risk having the Jews report him to the emperor that he had released this revolutionary, especially one who made himself out to be king in opposition to Caesar. So he's got this dilemma in verse 13. He sits on the judgment seat and he prepares to make his statement on the matter. Isn't, isn't that ironic that Pilate is fixing to judge Jesus? Pilate is going to sit in judgment on the one whom the Father has granted all judgment to, according to John 5, 23. And who would one day pass judgment on Pilate. And Pilate sits in judgment on him. In verse 14, we see the supreme moment to which all of redemptive history pointed had arrived. So John carefully and dramatically sets the scene up for us in verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth, hours. He, he, sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
one final sarcastic statement, Pilate mocks the Jews and says, Behold your king. And they chant, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate asks, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, in an appalling, hypocritical shout, say, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate, verse 16, delivers him over to be crucified. Now, all this has happened according to the sovereignty of God. From a human standpoint, the trial of Jesus was the greatest crime and tragedy in history. But from the divine viewpoint, it was the fulfillment of very specific prophecies and the accomplishment of the very will of God. The fact that God had planned all this did not absolve the participants of their responsibilities. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see this tragedy. We know the end of the story, amen? We know this is not final. But it should help us to remember that Jesus went through such pain and suffering for us. You know, we're reminded of the Old Testament when Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul. It was a sign that the people had rejected God as their king. God as the one who was in control, who was ruler. And when the crowds cried out for Barabbas, it was a sign that they had rejected the Son of God, Jesus. And today, many reject the pleading of God the Holy Spirit as He draws people unto Himself. This was the trial of Jesus Christ, the trial of the ages. But really, the nation of Israel and the governor of Rome were the ones who were on trial. And they both failed miserably. May we not fail. May we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. This morning, I stand before you as one who is to bear witness to the truth that Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless Son of God, the one who existed before all time, came to the earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived for about 33 years, a perfect sinless life, fulfilling so many prophecies about the Messiah. They rejected him. They sent him to a cross to die, a Roman execution, where his blood was spilled for you, his body was broken for you. They buried him. But praise God, death, hell, and the grave couldn't hold him down. For he rose from the dead, victorious over those, so that we might have life. The Bible says he was witnessed by over 500 people. And then he ascended unto the Father, where he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and for me. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior we have. And so I proclaim these truths to you, just as John did. He wrote these so that people might know who Jesus was and that by knowing him, they might believe in his name. Believe this morning in the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your work. Thank you that you did suffer and die for us. And may we not take lightly what you have done for us, God. May we know that you have sovereignly worked throughout history, God, that we might be in this moment, even right now, praising the name of our God. Oh, what a Savior.
We love you, Jesus, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done. For it's in your name that we even make our prayer. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.